Not gonna lie, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode of Exalt Cast, so we're a little bit on the rusty side, and we completely forgot to include an episode title or in any way an intro that we could put music behind. So instead, I'm just going to do this: Siderials charting fate's course, or more importantly, Siderials. <laughs> Welcome to the Systematic Understanding of Everything, an Exalted podcast. The show is a collaborative effort between members of Pain the Dice, Bonus Experience, and Maids the Podcast. We are breaking down the basics of Exalted from its rules to its setting. I'm Monica, Exalted writer and developer. I'm Terry, producer and Siderials enthusiast. Today we are joined by two special guests, uh, Elliot and Vance. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Yeah, how about you introduce yourselves to us and our audience and uh, let people know who you are? Hi, I'm Elliot Freeman. I am an exalted writer and developer uh, for Sidereals Charting Fate's Course. I am Robert Vance. I am a writer and one of the line developers for Exalted 3rd Edition. As Elliot said, today we're going to uh, talk about Sidereals, which is currently in Kickstarter with the, uh, the the subtitle of, what's the proper term for that, the Charting Fate's Course portion of things? I've just called it a subtitle. Okay, yeah. cool. And we're going to go over Siderials and kind of what they look like in uh, third edition. So who are the Siderials and what role do they play in creation? So the Siderials are the chosen of the Maidens of Fate. They were empowered to be seers, oracles, spy masters, intelligence officers. They were very much like on the strategy, tactics, and intelligence side of the Divine Revolution. In the time since then, they have been advisors and power brokers, scholars, sages, martial arts masters, and specifically in the more recent history, after they did a little teeny thing that we've been referring to as the Solar Purge, they have been the power behind a lot of thrones in creation, kind of subtly helping to shape its course. And throughout it all, they have been secret agents of fate, kind of operating as heaven's most elite uh, saboteurs and infiltrators and just all around agents in creation. So jumping off of that, let's talk about the sidereal casts. What's the breakdown we have there? So there are five maidens of destiny, also maidens of fate. I've decided that we can call them both so we don't have to keep that consistent. And a sidereal's cast is based on which maiden chose them. The five are Mercury, Maiden of Journeys, Venus, Maiden of Serenity, Mars, Maiden of Battles, Jupiter, Maiden of Secrets, and Saturn, Maiden of Endings. And for Sidereals, all of the other Exalted, their casts are sort of a, a trait you have, but not a social unit. But for the Sidereals, your cast determines where in the Bureau of Destiny you work. So all of the Chosen of Endings work together in one department, and they do some grim work, so they are a pretty uh, broody bunch, and they really need to go out after work for drinks. <laughs> I kind of like the idea of that like being the way that people work, being like, it's a boy. Also, they're going to be an accountant. Like That, just, that would just be kind of like baked in from the beginning, but I, I, <laughs> I feel like people would kind of bristle against that. How are the Siderials broken down uh, politically? The Siderials seem to be somewhat unique in terms of groups in that there are clear political blocks. 
So the Sidereals, one of their kind of sobriquets for the overall group of them is the Five Score Fellowship, because there are five score or 100. And it was kind of a whole thing that they were usually so unified that they kind of worked as one, because they interact with each other a whole lot more than than many other types of exalt do. But especially in terms of the Solar Purge, you started to see this divide between a bronze faction who supported the Solar Purge and who planned and executed it in order to preserve creation, to protect it from kind of exalted excess, and then became very much a power block based on the status quo, on doing whatever they needed to do in order to preserve creation. And then you have a distinguished opposition in the form of the gold faction who existed mainly as like a collection of folks who didn't think that was cool. In previous editions, bronze and gold were kind of very much rooted in like anti-solar and pro-solar. That's kind of gone by the wayside. So now bronze is specifically about status quo and about kind of like long-term conservative planning. And then gold faction is a collection of idealists and renegades who have their own ideas about what would be a better way for the Sidereals to help shape creation, but who are all you know, kind of going at it in different ways. Some of them are supporting like splinter cults that support solars, like the cult of the illuminated. Some of them have their own like pet kingdoms. Some of them are like trying to do proof of concept for other ways that creation could be ruled or governed. And the thing that brings them all together has always been that resistance to settling for something less. And then in between them, you have a whole array of independents who, for one reason or another, just don't want to get involved in that politicking. That often means that they end up siding with the bronze just because they have a bigger institutional power base. They have more prestige to give. They have more resources to allocate. Are these formalized? Like, would one identify as a member of the bronze faction or are there like bronze faction, like meet and greets every Tuesdays in Yushan? So I would say that they're probably formalized in the sense that you know which alignment you're with, but there's not like Bronze Con 2022. Okay. Like, yeah, you might have a salon where you're inviting mainly like your bronze allies and whatnot. In the end, the Sidereals are still very much the five score fellowship, even when they're divided. So they kind of value being able to work with one another because they've got this whole thing where... uh, It's a very unique condition that they've got, and they're the only other ones who understand what it is to be a Sidereo. It it seems to be one of the things at the end of the day, unlike, say, for instance, the scheming of uh, the Death Lords or what have you, they still have to keep creation running. Like At a critical point, they need to be able to put politics aside. So even if there are these factions within the Sidereals, by definition, they can only go so deep. They have a job. They do have a job. Many, many jobs, actually. Too many jobs. jobs. Yeah. That kind of touches a lot on how they relate to each other. Do you guys want to talk about how they relate to other exalt types? It's, yeah, it seems pretty important, especially given the context of you know these two factions and their conservative or I dare I say progressive outlooks. So it really does break down by faction for a lot of them. The bronze faction, which is pro status quo, has been supporting the realm because in the wake of the Great Contagion, they saw someone who had the power to establish the kind of centralized power that the Bronze Faction could use as a base for going out and intervening in Destiny, and for making sure that all these dragon-blooded didn't cause Destiny to come apart, 
to the greatest extent they could. In in past editions, Essence use messed with Destiny. That's no longer the case, but the Exalted are really hard to get to do something if they don't want to do it. And so having 10,000 Dragonblooded completely on their own with no way to influence them, oh, the, the Bureau really does not like that. The Gold Faction isn't uniformly opposed to the Dragonblooded, but they do have a large tendency to be anti-realm as well as anti-the Bronze Agenda. The Lunars have had sort of a long and bitter history with the Sidereals. The Bronze Faction is at right with the realm at the top of the Silver Pact's list of people it wants dead. The Gold Faction has, throughout its history, tried to negotiate with the Silver Pact, but that has been compromised. You've had bad actors on both sides sabotaging that, and there is sort of a healthy suspicion among Lunars that's not unsupported that if they are communicating with the Gold Faction Sidereal, that could be intercepted by the Bronze Faction. The Solars, way back at the start of things, the Bronze Faction was behind the Solar Purge. But since then, the number of Solars has been reduced to such a, a small handful that they really haven't been on the Bronze Faction's radar. The Gold Faction has its ties to the Cult of the Illuminated, which has become a support network for young Solars on the run for the Wild Hunt. It's no longer what they had in 1st edition, where they were indoctrinating Solars to try to make them obedient lackeys of the Gold Faction. They are giving them assets, giving them training, and hopefully giving them some moral education, and then sort of setting them out in the theory that this is going to help destabilize the Bronze Faction status quo, but also lay the groundwork for maybe something better to come out of it. It's not a all-or-nothing plan that the Gold Faction is putting everything into, but it is Aisha Ura's baby, and she is probably the sidereal with the best chance of seizing leadership of the Gold Faction right now. Abyssals and Infernals are very poorly known to the Sidereals, and that makes them very, very high on the threat list, just because there is not that information there. You take the power of a Solar and then marry that to the power of an Enemy of Fate, and the, the Bureau of Destiny really isn't happy about that. <laughs> right alongside them are the Gatimians, who at this point they are largely a mystery to the Bureau. They have been around for about the last 50 years, and because they are led by a rogue sidereal, they have insider knowledge of heaven, how it works, where its gates are. So they have been launching sort of essentially terroristic strikes on heaven using hit-and-run stuff, sabotage. And they're sort of sidereal's signature foil. They're the guys you have martial arts duels on rooftops with, and then maybe later you kiss them. <laughs> uh, because that's how that's how every good rivalry goes. Is that a hint about that art piece? I, I make no promises. I will let Ray draw the implication she wants to. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are exigents. Siderials don't want to have to deal with exigents. Exigents really have nothing to do with destiny. But uh, the other bureaus of the celestial bureaucracy decided they weren't going to deal with exalted. Let the exalted deal with the exalted. And that's why the Bureau has to oversee them. If you are a god getting the exigence illicitly, if you are an exigent helping your god to break the laws of heaven, in theory, the Sidereals are the one policing that. In practice, that is the job they are most likely to try to get out of. I like the idea that, like, kind of like superhero 
tryouts that you have some sidereal that is trying to keep a handle on all of the exigence out there and there's like a uh, gym chosen of the corn god or something and just this very haggard 4000 year old person is just like what even are you um <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, I have one job to make sure that there are always precisely 100 kingdoms and you are not helping. (laughs) (laughs) So normally this is a messy question, but here maybe not. How many sidereals are there and what kind of unique things come out of the fact that there is a very finite number of them? So like we said earlier, they're the five score fellowships. So there are 100 sidereals, 20 of each flavor. That being said, I saw that coming. At one point in first edition, they were 100-ish, and then at one point, there were 100. I don't think we actually specify in the text. Five-score fellowship is pretty conclusive, but if you were like me, and you like the idea of 100-ish, it could be a metaphor, but but yeah, it's probably five. Probably 100. Or an approximation, or... Or active... So you have Rockanthulio or whatever who has left, like, do they count against that total or, or someone has gone rogue or what have you? Do they get a replacement? It seems perfectly reasonable that that would be a, an open question. So there are a hundred of them, which means that they're stretched pretty thin compared to the work that they have put in front of them. It's also one of the reasons why, even though they have these really bitter political differences that have lasted for millennia, they all live in heaven for the most part, or at least they have nominal offices there. They work there. They see one another. They're literally part of the same office. It is the unique situation that that the 99 other people who can understand what it's like to have a job as stressful as yours, where everyone forgets who you are and you're tasked with way too much to do, they're all around you all the time. So even, and sometimes especially when they tick you off, I don't know, there's going to be a camaraderie there. And it lets you do a proper exalted like office comedy, as it were, when you're talking about like people not forgetting who you are, uh, like the Cheers theme immediately uh, started playing as like very slowly <laughs> this <laughs> sepia version of the uh, the Jade Dome of Heaven comes into view. That really <laughs> should have been the Kickstarter video. Yeah. I don't, we probably would have needed to get rights for that, yeah. though. Laughing nice and yeah. life and kiss them as a har, And then that, that would have <laughs> doubled us. <laughs> that is a reference to as a kind of a side project for Chaz's actual play. Elliot and I did a fake sidereal audit, and that was two hours of pure madness to put it together. <laughs> and it was great. So I will include a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> Famously on this very show, I have grumped frequently about how much I hate putting a number on how many characters there are because then it quickly cramps your style with Mm -hmm. who you can include and then you know that's one of this one of my weird that's where the line is thing where like that blows my suspension of disbelief like there's only 300 people how come six of them are all in this location and this is the one time where that doesn't matter to me (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it is kind of a double-edged sword because the more characters you name the less Mm -hmm. characters you have available to exist freely which is why 100 ish works just fine but one of the other things i particularly like about like around 100 is that like humans can your your monkey sphere the number of people you recognize as people sits around 150 dunbar number uh, so that l- means that like in that 100ish frame you can like think of your character as like 
the people who they, their monkey sphere are these other 100 people, right? You probably know the name of every single other sidereal. You may not have mm -hmm. met them or be friends with them, but you know who they are and probably where they work or like where they all live together and stuff like that, which actually rolls us really nicely into the next question. You Shen, you Shen, you Shen. Let's talk about it. <laughs> we, we did so much cool new stuff for this chapter. Let's talk about what our the third edition fresh take on Yushan is like, as this is the key location for Sidereals. So Yushan, aka Heaven, is... It's Heaven. You know how Heaven works. It is where sort of creation's highest gods live, as well as their secretarial staff, their functionaries. The minor gods who sort of get swept up to heaven because they're with someone big. It is a gigantic city the size of a continent. It's beyond any imaginable human luxury. And it's where the Sidereals live and where they get into political intrigues with the gods. And where if they are going to cut loose and go to a behemoth wrestling match, they're going to do that. In all of its editions, it's always been based really closely on Journey to the West's depiction of heaven which I love so much. And now we have sort of given it, in addition to the cityscapes, there are large tracts of celestial wilderness. You have mountains made of bismuth. You have a quicksilver sea. So it's no longer this sort of single monotonous terrain. There are places where it's broken up. You have weird examples of what nature looks like in heaven, what the primordials did that they built and then the gods have built over. There's a lot more room for players to get involved in things the gods are getting up to, whether that's conspiracy, whether that's crime, whether that is a sports league that goes a little too far, or whether that is a householder court, which is heaven's equivalent of a HOA. Truly one of the worst things we've ever done. It's awful. I like that you mentioned the Bismuth Mountain, especially after the behemoth wrestling, and I just picture one behemoth going... I ate something, and another behemoth going lick the mountain. That's <laughs> a way of dealing with that. And it's neat to see your description of heaven because it does kind of answer that problem of like it's the size of the Blessed Isle, what's actually there. I don't know if this is the first book that mentions it, but you also kind of mentioned that there's like a criminal underworld in heaven. So I, I don't have exhaustive knowledge by any means of past editions, but it is very clearly a living, breathing place that adventures can be run in or just a place where you visit when you have to uh, punch the clock and get your next assignment. What does the Great Curse look like for Sidereals? So the Sidereals' Great Curse is their hubris. And they work on the same sort of 1 to 10 limit track as Solars and Lunars, but they gain limit very differently. They are much more dynamic in going up and going down. They still gain limit for going against their defining intimacies, and they still have a limit trigger. But they also gain limit when they have a plan or advice, and that gets shot down or ignored. So if you are doing your sidereal thing, giving people advice, being the sage, directing things, and people go against you, you're going to start getting pretty high on your hubris. And for them, that is a good thing. They get willpower when they gain limit. And when it gets too high, they go into a limit break that's very... I think that's identical to what they have in Exalted Essence. So you get things where they become obsessed with decorum, or they're convinced that something is the enemy, and no matter what's happening, it all traces back to them. So if you want to avoid that, you have a couple options. You can use your sort of anima powers to identify, here 
is a destiny I can help fulfill that falls under my Bane's purview. And if you do that, you get some willpower and you lose some limit. You can also lose limit when you're defeated or you face a setback because that deals a blow to your ego. But doing that also makes you lose willpower. So you end up with this push and pull between, okay, do I want to go out of my way, try and get some limit and get some willpower with it? Or would I rather sort of be willing to accept a defeat here to avoid uh, going off on some hubris later? I just like the fact that you have like a solar who reaches limit Blake and like rips a mountain in half or a, a lunar that consumes an entire like pod of whales. And then suddenly we have the sidereal at limit break that is like, these aren't regulation pickle forks. How do you think this meeting is going to proceed? And I'm like, yeah, this is my game. I get this one. <laughs> Mage players. Yeah. Let's talk about sidereal charms. Charms are a thing that uh, lots of people are always excited for. It's, I think, one of the things that backers look forward to the most, certainly. Where do they come from? And we know that every other exalt type sort of has their own cool thing. So what makes sidereal charms cool and special and different? So sidereal charms work on a very strange, a very abstract, a very conceptual level compared to what other exalted are doing at sort of the same level of essence a solar who gets up to essence five may start doing some really weird stuff but a sidereal has cursing you to make it impossible for anyone to love you as an essence one charm with no prerequisites and their abilities are a lot more esoteric in their themes for each one you've got sort of the basics of this ability if you've got melee you're going to be able to swing a sword good. But each has an associated constellation and an associated scripture. So basically you have a constellation defining sort of a subset of the Maiden's Purview. Like for battles in Brawl, the constellation is the Gauntlet, and that's about hard choices. And then Brawl's scripture is essentially a poem about accepting other people's deaths in order for you to survive. And that sort of puts the perspective on, okay, how does Brawl approach this idea of hard choices? It is about you making decisions to survive and occasionally making your enemies make these hard decisions about who's going to survive. They've got uh, a charm where it deals a lot of damage, but your enemy can shift that onto one of their allies. So if they are willing to betray them like that, they can get out. And that's really all just sort of coming at it through this weird conceptual overlap of the constellation and the scripture approach. Where do the charms come from? Like, who provides them? Like, we get the idea that for solars, these are just kind of natural manifestations of the ability to control essence. Is it the same with sidereals, or do they come from somewhere else? For sidereals, their charms are actual techniques for weaving fate. Uh, some of them can be recognized if they have an overt sign and if you know enough about the sidereals. I don't think we really get into their origins, but they can't create new ones without sort of petitioning the Maiden for their help. So there is, I think, the sort of implication that the Maidens took more direct of a hand in creating the sidereal charm set, or maybe the sidereal charm set being patterned on the nature of the Maidens and some of the archetypal deeds of the Maidens. Uh, one thing that shows up here that I don't think was in past editions, there are charms that rely on a secret realm that Mercury discovered or something that Saturn keeps imprisoned beneath the violet beer of sorrows in heaven. So there's this idea that the Maidens sort of had this active mythology at some point in prehistory and the Sidereals can tap into echoes and legacies of that. 
It also seems to be the case with a number of the charms that like the flavor text will make mention of characters and entities out there. I don't know if all of the other exalt types do, but I got to participate in the playtest for it and there wasn't setting information so much at the time, but even the the charms themselves were kind of dripping with that flavor that it makes mentions of uh, the five weavers of destiny that are going to oversee a closet of secrets or something like that and and just the the little drop-ins that kind of imply this wider world that you can choose to run in or or not, I found flavorful in a in a way that the shoot arrow good technique yeah. didn't necessarily. <laughs> Sidereal charms in some places they will interface directly with the celestial bureaucracy on a level beyond just filing paperwork. They are tapping into this sort of mystical pattern that binds the gods to the bureaucracy. So they're going to be able to do things like calling on certain gods within the bureau who do this thing to do a certain task, or calling on things that the Bureau of Destiny has within its offices. I would also like to note that Sign of the Corpse is going to be my new death metal band, so thank you for providing that. <laughs> Cherry, we should make a Sidereal-themed metal band called Sign of the Corpse. We should just do that together. That was like the promotional shirt I wanted to do that just had the Unconquered Sun on it and like the text, Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> and then when I asked Rich Thomas, can I do a shirt that says, was that like Dawn and Eclipse and, and Twilight and Zenith and so on? He's like, no, please stop asking me these questions. <laughs> um, but is there anything that Sidereals are particularly good at compared to other Exile types? It's not really focused on one thing. They're just able to do things that most Exalted would never get to do. They have curses and blessings that really work in ways that you typically wouldn't see. There is not another Exalt type that can defeat a demon and then turn it into a demon horse that will be their familiar or dodge a behemoth by moving a city out of its way. They manipulate reality in little ways and big ways, and the end result is something that most Exalted just don't have a equivalent to for their biggest and flashiest charms. Outside of their native charms, they are specialists in martial arts. There is sort of a tier above regular martial arts named after them, Sidereal Martial Arts. You have to be Essence 3. You have to have already mastered some regular martial arts to be there. And while it's open to a couple different exalt types, the Sidereals, the Timians, and then the Solars and their corrupted versions, the Abyssals and Infernals, the Sidereals are the ones who get the most out of it. There is a Enlightenment keyword that works similarly to Mastery. Sidereals get that all the time. Gatimians can do some tricks with their flowing and still essence to get it on some styles. And then Solars and others just don't get to get it. So there is a level of power in Sidereal martial arts where a Sidereal can just say, yeah, I am outpacing a Solar here. Nice. So we've just discussed their charms at length. Let's talk about other unique abilities that Sidereals may have. Maybe you want to talk about their anima effects. Uh, do we want to talk about astrology? A bunch of stuff that people might be familiar with from previous editions and how they look now? Sure. Two of the Sidereals' sort of signature effects have been Arcane Fate and Resplendent Destiny. Arcane Fate is when you stop interacting with someone, they have to succeed on a roll or they just forget you. And that is sort of the defining characteristic of the sidereal condition. No matter how good a relationship you have with someone, someday, whether it's tomorrow or centuries down the road, they're going to wake up and not know who you are. And that's something that the mechanic 
tries to make very streamlined for gameplay. If someone has an intimacy to you, if someone is exalted and has a excellency and can throw a lot of dice at it, it's not going to be something where they're forgetting you left and right in a comedy of errors. And we sort of borrowed from Essence making your circle mates just flatly immune to it, because that, unless you really want to do that in gameplay, can get really annoying. The other half of that is Resplendent Destinies, where they sort of take on a archetypal persona, and people can remember that persona, even if they can't remember the real you. You can't really establish a full-fledged identity. You're stuck being a soldier, or a midwife, or a sidereal exalt, and people just sort of fill in generic details. And that is sort of part of their repertoire of disguise magic. It's not the most powerful thing they have access to, but all of them have it, so you can always have some cover identities to interact with people under and maybe try to disguise but yourself behind. Their big ability in past editions outside charms and martial arts was sidereal astrology, which let you lay blessings and curses on various scales. Here we have broken that up for individual blessings and curses on people. That's now going to live in your charms. But there is a sidereal prophecy system that is essentially a hacked version of sorceress workings that you use to do the large-scale stuff where you're steering the fate of a kingdom or giving someone a blessing unto the seventh generation in just a very subtle, behind-the-scenes way. The big difference from past editions is it is greatly streamlined. What is said about first edition is that it tried to emulate the feeling of going through a bureaucracy <laughs> in the mechanics. <laughs> Whether or not that is true, this one no longer feels like going through a bureaucracy. There were a lot of fun little effects that kind of got hidden in old versions of Sidereal Astrology, and wherever those have been interesting, Vance and the Charm Writers have plucked them out and put them back into the Sidereal Charm set. So you have things like Field Mouse Rider, where you can just give anything the destiny of being rideable. So <laughs> if you want to ride around on your Sparrow Familiar with a little set of reins, like you can do that. That's what the Sidereal rides in Exalt Cart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I'm just imagining like Easy Come Dozan on top of their little pattern spider. Just... <laughs> Drifting in like the Mario Kart 64 style low polygon. <laughs> the blue sparks are coming up, but now they're yellow sparks because Mercury. <laughs> I do like the idea that you, Sean, is like covered in those little arrows that if you go of them, you go, you can go way faster and that's how gods get around or something like that. So it kind of is. You, Sean, is just Rainbow Road. <laughs> there actually is like a golden line in like some of the magical or wait, did that make it back in? I think we kept it to just the regular canal without yes. the special lane. Correct. What type of games do you see coming out of playing Sidereals? So Sidereals have probably one of the most specific milieus in Exalted because they have some really strong framing devices that storytellers and playgroups can use. One of the big ones is kind of doing like episodic mission-based things where you have a circle of Sidereals who might be sent out into creation on various missions, which is fun and I think a great way to get people into Exalted because it is a little less intimidating. You can give them a little bit more of a strong plot hook 
playbook on here's the thing that you need to do. We're even going to give you some background intelligence on it, on what the situation is, so that you can just drop in and get started. You can also have scenarios who are kind of embedded on even larger missions. So that might be instead of taking just one episodic mission at a time, maybe they are, you know, being tasked with a thorough investigation of the Thorns incident, which is an entire arc of that campaign as they're investigating this part and this part, and they have to go to a Shadowland and the Underworld. And it's, you can also have with the Sidereals kind of a really high social politicking game that focuses on the power brokers of heaven, where sidereals are working against one another. They're intriguing against gods and peers to try and get their pet projects into reality. And I think that those are three really good, really different flavors. And there's a whole lot more that you can do with sidereals, but I think those three are probably some of the, the more common. And more common frameworks that really benefit from the way that sidereals are embedded in a certain social situation. So now that we've talked about the types of games and things like that, let's talk about mixed games, which I know is not always primarily third edition's focus, but it is a thing that people like to do. So how do sidereals fit into mixed exalt type games? So previous editions kind of made it a little bit difficult to square the circle, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> previous editions kind of took a, a much more onerous tack on like what kind of missions a sidereal get and how much free reign they have to kind of do their own thing. We've really focused on making it so being a sidereal doesn't suck. It's an excellent, tiring, exhausting, thankless, but very rewarding job. And they have a lot of leeway in how they do what they do. So that was one of the things that we really tried to bring in to facilitate the opportunity for mixed play. So sidereals have a lot more leeway. They are some of the most trusted agents of heaven. When you are out on a mission in creation, you are given latitude to you know, use whatever resources that you've got, including your other circle mates. We have given them more opportunity for time because a lot of previous editions were very precise about like, oh, here's how much sabbatical you can probably take, maybe. And now we're just like, yeah, you are crazy overworked, but you know, the Bureau values the sidereal agents that it's got. You have the time and the opportunity to go be part of your creational adventures. We, like Vance said earlier, circle mates are flat out immune to arcane fate because that's just not something that is going to be interesting except at very, very specific tables. And it's easier for those tables to take that rule out than for other tables to put that rule in. So even though, like you said, third edition maybe doesn't focus as much on mixed circles as Essence does, for example, it's definitely something where we wanted sidereals to be more playable, to have more opportunity for the fluff around them to have flex room that a sidereal could be part of an adventuring group of solars as an advisor or a friend, that a sidereal could be the one who is hanging out with the lunars to try and finally bridge the pact between the fellowship and the pact, that a sidereal could be a secret double agent embedded in an abyssal circle. We wanted to make sure that you have the flexibility to make that happen at your tables without it feeling like you're really having to diverge from a air quotes canon sort of framework. 
And I feel like kind of the nature of the charms allow for a lot of like interesting set pieces where like even if you don't have 700 dice or the ability to turn into a behemoth in a mix exalt game for the sidereal to really have an interesting way to do something useful and to be in the spotlight besides just being the, the, the sneaky person who everyone forgets. Absolutely. Uh, they have the side effect of their charms being weird is that their charms are weird, which means that they can do stuff that others are just not going to have an answer for or a way to like compete with them, which is good. It means that they've got some extra space that they can occupy. They're also excellent at intelligence and asking questions and getting information, both diegetic and kind of extra diegetic. And I think with their uh, charm that allows them to spend one moat to, to send a message, they're the first exalt in third edition that can text. So that's useful. <laughs> can uh, the dragon blooded still text? Oh, I didn't know. They have to do it by voice. So they are at a cruder, less sophisticated level. Got it. They have to leave. Uh, they're, they're using the next walkie talkie feature. <laughs> that's good to know. If you petition the maidens, you can get a upgrade charm that lets you get a full on uh, homestuck group chat going. Oh, but no. Good luck selling Saturn on that. Vance, what have you done? Because of their jobs, there are certain terms for the Sidereals that are that kind of have specific meanings. And and reading through fate, destiny, and prophecy all mean something very specific. What do they mean? So this has been very confusing in the past, and it was like the very top of the outline, this is the thing we have to get right. Fate is the basic causal law of creation. It's the reason why tomorrow has to come after today, why a yard is going to stay the same length no matter what happens, why apples fall down when they fall from a tree unless there is someone doing magic to make them fall up. It's just sort of that basic causality. Destiny is... Heaven looks along all the possible futures that fate could allow, every possibility that fits within those laws, and it says, okay, for this kingdom, or this person, or this flight of geese, we want this possible future to happen. And that is woven into the loom of fate, and as long as they're able to fulfill destiny, that reinforces reality, that makes creation more resilient against the wild and other corrupting forces. So it is sort of this unambiguously, if you like creation, this is a good thing. But then you see how the sausage is made. The contents of what futures get picked are entirely up to politics. Within the limits of what's feasible for heaven to actually make happen, it is all about who can call in the most favors, who has the most political influence to make sure that they are benefiting from this destiny and not their rivals. The bronze faction is making sure that the realm is prospering in the destinies that get planned. The god of tea is going to want to make sure that tea is going up in price on the markets rather than coffee. So it is pretty vicious politics in deciding what destiny actually is, but it's something player characters can take a hand in and try to steer it towards, okay, maybe I want to be a reformer who is planning destiny based on what makes people's lives better. Or maybe I want my cut. I want to be a Yushan power broker. Let's be self-serving for me. And so there's this interplay between fate and destiny where fate is what says what a destiny can be, but they're very different in what they are. Fate is cosmic force, apersonal. Destiny is something that heaven does making use of the loom to set this up as its agenda that needs to be fulfilled. And then prophecy is 
limited just to those sort of what has filled the space of sidereal astrology, those large-scale blessings and curses. That's prophecy, and it is separate from destiny. It involves manipulating fate, and one of the possible consequences is someone plans a destiny that goes against your prophecy, but that's otherwise sort of its own third thing. And just to clarify, is the Loom of Fate descriptive or prescriptive? Does it kind of weave what happens in creation, or is it merely documenting what has occurred and what can occur? The Loom is a tool for seeing possible futures, not for directly acting on the world. When you weave destiny, that is not self-fulfilling. Heaven has to act to make it happen. The pattern spiders in the Loom are able to use it to make very tiny nudges to make a coin come down one way instead of the other. And they're able to do a lot just by that. But for really significant destinies, you need either a god or a sidereal handling things on the ground. We have a natural setup for Katimians as these invaders. You, I think you specifically described them as like terrorist attacks. So are we going to get a little advanced information on them? I mean, I understand that this is the Sidereal's book, but uh, are we going to get like maybe Heaven's perspective on these characters or anything like that? We get a skosh on the Katimians, mainly setting up, yes, the war in heaven, which is led by Rakan Tulio and his cadre of Katimians, and maybe possibly other rogue sidereals if you decide that he has some of those in tow. They are using their knowledge of the heavenly bureaucracy and heaven's celestial gates to launch either infiltration or sabotage or out-and-out attacks at some points, but they tend to be very much guerrilla warfare or they tend to be subversion. There's definitely a sense that this is the period of prodding and testing to see where Heaven's defenses are, but we are saving a lot of the bigger details about Katimians for their own book down the line. What we want to give you here is just a taste of how to frame that conflict, probably as a background element of Sidereal Chronicles, because it's not going to be something that I think every single playgroup is going to want to lean into heavily. But you will also get to see a Katimian as we progress through the manuscript. Uh, One of them may become very important, and as a matter of fact, he might already be on one of the pieces of art on the Kickstarter. Are there any characters that you are pleased to introduce into third edition for the Sidereals, either for the first time or that were reintroduced from previous editions? I think looking through the manuscript you provided me, insert third exemplar here is probably the one I'm most excited about. But what about for you? Oh, God, please don't tell me. Okay, no, that was, <laughs> that was for anyone who's never done something like this. Like, there's so many versions of a manuscript that goes out at so many different stages, and they're all living simultaneously in your head if you are the person who has been developing them. Yeah, it's deeply confusing. I don't really like insert third exemplar. I think he's a little bit showy. Yeah, (laughs) it's all about him. I really like almost everyone we have in the divisions and the bureau write-ups there are just so many fun gods and it goes from we've got Lytech, who everyone has always loved Lytech. the metaphysics of what he did eh. but everyone loves the character of the god of exaltation who is interested in the exalted who wants to know about them and who is a big fan of them and we now have him in a role where he makes sense for how exaltation works and how creation works 
but he gets to be someone who is a scholar of what the exalts do, someone who is going to be interested in you, going to be a big fan of you, who may care slightly more about your past life than your present one, but he's still cool. We've got Taru Han, who is just completely ignoring her job to collect souls, which I have always loved deeply. And then we've not got a lot of new gods. We have a god of larch bullets, a kind of symbiotic mushroom, who was misclassified in the Bureau of Nature's Division of Plants, which has gone from, <laughs> it has gone from annoying them to making them want to do a complete overhaul of the Bureau of Nature's structure. We've got the Bureau of Seasons now came out of a labor revolt or a labor movement. And one of its characters is Let Mountains Fall. He's uh, an elemental, a labor organizer, and a poetry critic. <laughs> he has just won my heart deeply. What was the name of the rainbow god again? Arda Iatris. Arda Iatris is one of my favorites. So one of the things that we're introducing in this edition is the incarnate do in fact have like lives. And that means that they also have kids and grandkids and great grandkids who are often in positions that they might not otherwise have reached by merit alone. So Arda Iratis, oh my gosh. But they are a rainbow god, and they are a precious cinnamon roll who is in a little bit over their head. I love them dearly. We've also been able to do a glow up on a couple of old favorites. Like we got to really try and dig in and find a new, more sympathetic angle for Chijop Kejak, the notional head of the bronze faction. So we kind of played him up as being a little bit more wistful and nostalgic as he comes towards the end of his days and is trying to find like solace trying to find one last minty one last protege just really kind of questioning his legacy in a way that i think feels fun and a little bit more playable than the mimetic badass that he was in previous editions where he he's no longer like the martial artist and the sorcerer his main distinction is being really good with people and not just good with like high-ranking politicking like his write-up specifically calls out that sometimes he needs to go to the you know chief minister of all heavenly finance and sometimes he just goes to the chief minister of all heavenly finances like undersecretary and like knows their birthday and asks them about their wife and and slips them just the right idea to percolate up to that person. So he actually like knows everybody's name. The Green Lady, another another favorite from past editions, got to be a little bit more dimensional and a lot more fun and a lot more playable. Honestly, with all of these characters, one of the big things that we did is we made sure that all of them have a hook in them for specifically what would they want from sidereals and how can sidereals hook into them and that was really fun and then also i really love our new signatures but our chosen of secrets nayalu is my hands down favorite yeah i do like the redo of lytech the scribe of exaltation i did not know that he was formerly the supreme minister for abstract matters which sounds like the most academic title one could humanly have and as you mentioned yeah each of these gods has an obvious way to use it in in your game Oh, I do want to say we finally have details on Honest Sin, who has in past editions been the sort of legendary sidereal martial arts grandmaster, but has never really gotten a personality fleshed out for her or a stat block. <laughs> she now has both. She may be the biggest badass in creation. I love her so much. 
She is wonderful. And then I would also be remiss not to mention, is it Bahal Hesh? Bahal Hesh is how I say it. Bahal Hesh, who is the god of martial arts. And I will never forget, because I laughed so hard from the first drafts, and it was, uh, he rewards the just with martial arts duels and punishes the unrighteous with martial arts duels. Yeah, uh, the the preceptor of (laughs) 10,000 styles. Let's talk about inspirational sidereal media. Like, what do you think, both what inspired you two as the developers, and also other things that you think are like quintessential reading, watching, playing for people who want to be inspired for their sidereal games? So the classics are, we've already mentioned Journey to the West and The Complete Traveler in Black, which inspired a lot of Sidereal's role as Servants of Destiny, and specifically a lot of their charms. I got like a quarter of the way into it and just sort of bounced off the pros, but that is there is a historical foundation. For me, I've really found The Wire to be sort of my touchstone for how corrupt is you, Sean? Because I think it does a good job of avoiding like a cartoonish idea of corruption, keeping it rooted in people's personality so it's not just okay this person is corrupt they're an irredeemable villain you have to oust versus okay this person is not corrupt they're clearly doing the right thing kill six billion demons a webcomic that is just visually spectacular has informed a lot of how i see you sean especially the sort of more rundown areas and it's lent a little bit to sidereal martial arts. I really don't want to like draw heavily from other properties in creating new martial arts. It seeps in a little bit. I think the only thing that I would really add to that is just a, a recognition this time around of Doctor Who as a pretty good touchstone for sidereals just by vibes, especially if you're maybe a rogue sidereal who's traveling around creation or you're wanting to do kind of episodic mission-based things. I think there's a lot of hay you can make with that as a way of introducing it, a useful metaphor for new players of, you know, you get to be the Time Lords. You get to be the people who know a little bit more of what's going on and who are kind of wandering around doing all sorts of fun mischief. And also just recognizing that especially some of the portrayals of the Time Lord Society as being, you know, corrupt or indolent or bureaucratic immobilized are very useful as a common piece of reference. So this is currently available on Kickstarter. If you are listening to this before it closes on December 22nd, please do. The manuscript is being released chapter by chapter as it goes through, as has kind of been the, the common case. As with all the other OPP Kickstarter things, especially seemingly the ones for Exalted, if you notice anything that's that's odd as you go through, these manuscripts are very much living documents, and I am frequently delighted by how much revision takes place after the 10,000 Eyes of the Community looks over it. Elliot or Vance, any closing thoughts for, before we can, before we tell people where to keep track of you on the interwebs i'll real quick throw in and just say like a major congratulations to all the writers that we had on the project because they really all did turn in their a game to make sidereal yeah. as amazing as it possibly could be there was a lot of passionate people that went into it and we asked some big things of them and they all delivered and were amazing there were some real home runs from uh, a whole lot of people absolutely and with that elliot if people are interested in knowing what you're up to where can they do that I mean, that's a great question. If Twitter still exists by the time that this episode goes up, I can still temporarily be found 
mostly just liking and retweeting things as Elliot M. Freeman. And we will see if something else comes forward to replace that. And Vance, do you have a home on the interweb? I am currently on Twitter as R.S. Van, and we'll see if somewhere else arises or if we'll be freed from this horrible hell world. <laughs> <laughs> and Monica, if people are interested in knowing what you're up to, where can they do that? The shambling corpse of my Twitter is at Zenith Sun, and you can follow it for all the good that'll do you. I'm, I, I haven't deleted. I'm mostly just waiting for that to collapse in on itself or become a Nazi-filled cesspool, at which point I will just delete my account. I do have a Tumblr, which I do update and occasionally make posts on, uh, follow at your own risk. Dice Dash Wizard is that. I made a Hive social account. I'm uh, at the Dice Wizard, all one word. And I not posted on any of those things yet as um, there's nobody there. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to follow me, eventually maybe people will be there. I haven't jumped on any other bandwagon. Oh, and I'm talking about the Hive. That's the one app that's run by like two people, not the one that's run by the horrible turf where you can like lose your account and stuff like that. There's two of them apparently. And I was very confused when certain things were coming out. Like I'm never joining this site it's run by a horrible person and it's just like oh there's two of them like so. a web 2.0 thing where one is spelled like hive hve and another one is hyvvveee or something like that or one is hive period and the other is hive social ah, okay Got hive social is the one that's run by like two people and as far as i know they're not shitheads I am glad for that. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested in finding out what I'm up to at Terry Robinson on the inner toots. Also, there is still the systematic understanding of everything discord channel, which is graciously hosted by Monica and the bonus experience team. You can you the discord is public. Please come and hang out with us. We also finally quarantined all exalted talk into its own channel. And so uh, there's a, there's a whole subset of uh, activity on the bonus experience discord just dedicated to exalt we remain not an exalted space it's you if you come here please expect to talk about other games too but like we do have a little mini exalted community there with the systematic understanding of everything channels and the exalted channel so yeah you can reach that at discord.exaltcast.com Elliot, Vance, thank you so much for joining, and I look forward to seeing the final book added to my bookshelf a, a year or two from now absolutely thanks for having us yeah, thanks for having us on. Thank you for listening to Systematic Understanding of Everything, an Exalted podcast. Go to exaltcast.com to subscribe, see our show notes, or listen to our past episodes. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and Anchor.fm. If you have a question, shoot us an email at questions at exaltcast.com. If you'd like to support our show, please consider using the affiliate links in our show notes to make purchases on DriveThruRPG and thestorytellervault.com. The opening theme is Return of the Solar Exalted, and the closing theme is the Sidereal Exalted Lesser But Safe from Fanfare for the Chosen by James Simple, and is used with permission. In the meantime, exalt strong. I'm Terry, Sidereal's enthusiast and producer. The way you said that makes it sound like you are also the Sidereal's producer. Mm, okay. As opposed to the producer of this show. Leader of microwave programming. Yeah, got it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, no, I, Terry out here just like, no, no, I am the producer. <laughs> that, that's a certain degree of arrogation that I have not earned. If you want to get real messy, have 108 sidereals and then ask your players which one are short two extra casts. Monica, was it you who was like, yeah, the connections between the two have kind of been tendentious. And I'm like, well, literally the opening three pages of the revised LARP handbook is, hi, I'm a sidereal. I'm an avatar now. <laughs> was, like, I did I did not know that existed. Yeah. That was, I was like, what?
connection's tenuous at best, and you were like, how about uh, text exactly? And I was like, well... Revised was a very weird time. I think my favorite part of looking through a manuscript are the almost pleading notes to whoever does the layout <laughs> that is on the spectrum of center these dots to please center these dots to it would be great if these dots were centered to for fuck's sake if these dots aren't centered I will find you and you're like oh okay that escalated quickly uh, I have completely lost the plot that's of fine. what I was saying that's fine uh <laughs> so which incarnate had an affair with the calibration gate Luna obviously oh that's true yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's right. QED. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, this is ridiculous. No serious person would consider it. But here is the canon answer in four different ways and for three different reasons. I think my favorite one there is the constellation of the crow had an astrology power that let you turn into a crow. In order to get that into awareness, I had to decide okay, the way awareness turns you into a crow is by taking a bird's eye view on the thing. <laughs> the flavors of the maiden what? sounds like an amazing energy drink series that <laughs> the vending machines in yushan only yes um hot hot robot robot this is not going to be released right terry if i die it's because i fell on my own sword or more accurately yeah. asked what is it this closet where the door is bulging of pointy objects opened the door and all of my own swords fell on me <laughs> fell out <laughs> yes <laughs> Ha 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 ha!